This is Sean Lewis, the writer of Bliss from Image Comics, and you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back. To spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Sean Lewis, isn't it? It is. He is the writer of the new comic coming out from Image called uh, Bliss. Bliss. He worked recently with the same artist, Caitlin Yarsky, on um, Coyotes. And yeah. uh, Jeff got to sit down and talk with him about uh, everything Bliss <laughs> and more. Nice. Nice. Jeff has come into his own with all these interviews. Yeah, it's kind of great. He gives us yeah. a new voice, and he has a lot of in-depth questions, which is really cool. He is the fan of fans. He is. He, you know he what I asks mean? the fan questions. Oh, God. He knows. I, I don't know. Like, on page three, on panel four, you said this, and yeah. what did this mean? And did, were you trying to do it? And most <laughs> of the time, he gets the he gets them all enwrapped, and like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. No, 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 no. It's like, I, I, I never think of questions like that. Yeah, no, he's he's great at that. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's because it just gives us a whole different vibe. And you're going to hear this vibe with Sean right now. You're listening to Spoiler Country. And today on the show, we're talking bliss with writer Sean Lewis. How are you, Mr. Lewis? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's definitely our pleasure. I did have the pleasure of looking at Bliss, your new um, comic, and that looks fantastic. Thanks. Thanks. That's good to hear because uh, not many people have seen it yet. So you're, you're one of the first. I, I, I get very lucky sometimes. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the nice perks of the job. I can, not only do I get to talk to awesome people, but I also get a free copy of the book from time to time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so as we were talking talk about earlier about how the kind of crazy times we live in, how are you handling it? It's okay. I mean, I think everyone's going through you know, a, a, a really interesting, tough and, and fascinating time. I mean, I mean, the hardest thing has just been having a toddler, uh, a four-year-old. He's, he, the last couple of days, he's uh, gotten incredibly sad. He looked at me today. Uh, he's had tantrums all day. And I said, what's going on, buddy? What's your deal? And he looked at me and said, I don't think my friends are going to remember who I am. Oh, that's, so, <laughs> that's so harsh. Yeah, man. It really broke my heart. So there was a lot of hugging before he went before he went to bed tonight. So that, that, I mean, that's been the, the hardest. I do really well with uncertainty. I think I've been a freelancer for long enough that um, the scariness of jobs and sickness and things like that, I, I'm, I'm actually almost better in those periods of time than regular 
And uh, yeah, so it's I, it's it's interesting. It's I, I don't know. I this is going to be a year everybody remembers. You know, I feel like this is like one of those like most important years of your life type things. Yeah, I can't help but think it's going to be one of those years that um, no one ever maybe quietly no one talks about. I'll be like, hey, there was 2019, then there was 2021, and we don't talk about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it might, it might end up being that. But yeah, where you are is the pandemic still uh, a major concern, or have things started dying down? Not really. I mean, I'm in New York, but I'm upstate a little bit. So, I mean, everyone's really, really cautious, but I mean, we've been pretty stringently locked down. I don't know what it's like anywhere else. It just has felt really, really tight for the past four months. It's just starting to relax a little bit, but it doesn't feel any different, honestly, from my perspective than it did three months ago. You know, like we're still basically homebound and, you know, everything's still basically closed. Well, for a while, you guys were basically the, almost like the center of the pandemic in this country. Yeah, I mean, Manhattan, definitely. I have a lot of friends. I'm north of Manhattan, so so it was bad, but not, you know, nearly. But my, my, a lot of my friends who were living, like, in the city proper and in the, in the five boroughs were, like, losing their mind. I was an actor who has a, a son the same age as me, and they were literally just stuck in their apartment for four mo- for the past four months. Like, they, they, they've been really losing their mind. We, we at least have some space where we are, like, backyard and... We can go walking in our neighborhood for the most part, as long as you like keep distance. Where it, it just yeah. seemed like city, it was it was just like a completely different experience. Yeah, I, I live in Rhode Island, so I'm not too too far from you. Maybe about three and a half hours, right. four hours. And I will say, over the last week or two, it feels like people here have begun to forget about the pandemic. We just I drove around with my wife earlier today, and we we drove around the beach. We were, we were actually looking for a lemonade truck because that's how <laughs> that's, that's how we roll. And at the beach. There was tons of people, no masks, no social distancing, nothing. I mean, it was literally just like a herd of people as if it was just a regular summer. And I've been, I'm a teacher, so I, I, I remote teach. So I've been basically staying oh. in the house for better since the first week of March. And I, I was, I was shocked when I came out and I was, I was like, oh my God, no one else seems to remember it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely elements of that. I'm, I'm still seeing people around here with masks. I think we got hit hard enough that it's, it, it's still somewhat scary for the yeah. most part. You know, it's really weird just seeing the trajectory because even for us, like the week it really hit because we weren't right in the city. My wife and I were actually like, we were, it was right around spring break for our kid. And we were, we were like planning like, ah, oh, I guess we could go away. And we were originally thinking of going to the city to try and bring him to see like, he loves Frozen. So we were like, let's go to the city and we'll go see the Broadway show of Frozen <laughs> with our son. And we were, and you know, it was right when it was hitting and we were like, even us, like, we're, we're pretty cautious people, conscientious. And we're like, oh, I don't know how serious it is yet. Like, no one's really saying anything. Maybe we could go down. It's not a big deal. And luckily we didn't. Because then like within a week, we went from almost going down to the city thinking, ah, what, how bad could it possibly be? To, you know, owning masks, staying in our house, like not seeing anyone. It, it was just like so fast, the, the, the transition. That, that was kind of amazing to be like, wow, we went from zero to 100 like, so quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, when I, my last memory of when I was in class teaching, at, um, I teach at a high school, like a, it's like a special needs high school, and I remember some of my students were asking me, you know, what's going on with this pan, you know, with um, co- this coronavirus, it's bad, it's bad. I'm like, guys, don't worry about it. It's, you know, it's not going to be a major thing. It's fine. <laughs> and then <laughs> the next day I called out, kind of played hooky a little bit to spend some, a day with my wife. The next day they canceled school. And we haven't obviously have him back. And it's like, Jesus, like the world completely turned. And I literally yeah. went to the went to the comic book store for the first time a couple of days ago 
And I mean, I went with the mask and everything, but I was like, first time I went to the comic book store, and I guess it would have been uh, three months. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been really crazy. Like, even Caitlin, who I work on Bliss with, you know, she just had a story, this great story in this Buffy anthology. And that's the first time I went to pick it up. And it's the first time I, for me, too, that I've been in a comic shop. I was like, this is so strange. Like, uh, that this is also, it's just weird being in a comic shop where in, in any place right now with wearing masks and gloves and, I'm just like, wow, it's interesting that this is like so, so much the new reality. I mean, I'm, I agree with it. <laughs> oh, yes. Like, Same here. But, it, but, it, but it's definitely, it seems, you know, what's really fascinating to me about it is like, it's completely surreal, but we're so adaptable that I, I don't necessarily think about it that much when I'm in the store. Like I was in the grocery store yesterday, just picking up some stuff quickly. And, you know, everyone's wearing masks. I've got masks. I've got gloves on and I'm, and I'm really just thinking like, God damn, I don't know this grocery store. Where's the mustard? Like, I'm not, it's <laughs> like, like, I'm not even thinking the fact that we all look like we're in some like crazy dystopian future movie as, as we're buying cereal. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> still stuck in my like lizard brain going like, I need, I need like honey mustard. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that honey mustard. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, just, it's just kind of amazing to me that it's, it, it's already become that it's become so normal that when they talk about opening stuff up, I'm almost having a hard time processing what that means. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say with with me, I, I've gotten used to it, except there's sometimes when certain memories hit, I'm like, oh, shit, that is different. Like, for instance, when I'm at the store and there's someone there who wasn't wearing their mask, I just that moment of like, oh, my God. Like, like it's almost like this invasion of the body snatchers where I just want to like point and do like that, that scream. Like, ah, <laughs> you know, like, no mask. And then there's um, the last someone uh, I was talking to my, my wife about going to the movie theater. And I was like, for the life of me, I, I trying to remember the last movie I've been I've, I've been in the movie theater. It might have been Avengers Endgame or something. I can't remember the last time I saw the movie wow. theater now. Yeah, I'm a huge I mean, that's my main like blow off steam is to go to the movies by myself like two or three times, like two or three nights a week once my son's asleep. And so it's been really I'm just like I went from seeing so many films that being a, like that and playing basketball were like the biggest releases in my life. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know if I'm going to play basketball all like all year. Like, I have no idea when I would actually play basketball again. And and the same with movies is I'm like, I don't know if there's going to be a movie theater that's open when I can go see movies again. Yeah. hundred <laughs> like, percent. I mean, it's just weird. Same thing with like sports. Talking about basketball. Like I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. And I must admit at this point, every so I remember, remind myself, Oh, wait a second. It's supposed to be baseball season right now. And I must admit, right. don't seem to care anymore. <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing too, right? Like I, I'm in the same boat where it's like, a lot of things I really love, like I'm a, I'm a big sports fan too. So baseball and basketball, like this was, this would normally be my prime moment, right? Like we'd, yeah. we'd have the NBA finals and it's just starting to kick into like full baseball season. And yet I don't, it's not like I'm like missing it or angrily longing for it or anything. I'm just like, oh yeah, right. I wonder if they'll play this year. Like it's just kind of like <laughs> second, so secondary. Exactly. Should, am, am I guessing you're a Yankees fan? No, I hate the Yankees with, oh, a, good. with, a, huge, with a huge passion. What's your no, team? I, I sadly grew up. My parents were divorced, so my dad was living in Denver, Colorado. That's where I was born. Yeah. My my mom and who I lived with was out here. They passed me down the curse. My mom's family passed me down the curse of rooting for both the Mets and the Knicks. Oh. And 
Yeah, it's rough. It's horrible. And then my dad, whenever I would go and visit him, he would bring me to Bronco games. And it was during Elway. So I, I grew up a huge Denver Bronco fan, which was tough because the Giants com- killed them in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I, I had to live with that like every day in school. Well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very relieved you're not a Yankees fan. I'm Orioles. I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan. Oh, so nice. I've been in pain a long time. Yeah, and- yeah. Born in Baltimore, so it's 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 my it's my team. But yeah, I've been sad for was it twenty years now, <laughs> twenty five yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, we could com- we could commiserate on that. The Mets, the Mets, and the Knicks, the Knicks are. I'm a much bigger basketball fan than baseball fan. The Knicks just are. It's just the most miserable. <laughs> I was I was actually excited. Like the only good, like some of the best news I've gotten recently was that if the NBA comes back, the Knicks are not allowed to play. And I was like. Yeah, because they're only they're only going to take back like the teams that are I think like twenty teams, like the teams that are in uh, contention to actually make the playoffs, just for health reasons. So if you're not a- at all able to make the playoffs, then you're not invited to come down and play. <laughs> this so I was actually the rule. Oh, I was thrilled. I, mean, I wish they would get rid of the Knicks as a franchise. It would make my life <laughs> so much easier. Oh, the market's too big though in New York, unfortunately. I know we're a basketball crazed city that hasn't had good basketball for decades. Yeah, well, like I said, when it comes to the Orioles, this is basically the best Orioles have been in June in a long time. I'm actually thinking, we're 0-0. Zero zero. That's, that's the best, the best <laughs> we can hope for. <laughs> they're, five, they're 500. They're still in the race at this point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if the season comes back and there's only going to be maybe 70 games, I'm thinking, you know, the worst they can lose maybe is like 40 or 50 games. It's not so shabby. <laughs> right, right. You can't get that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the pain uh, that teams. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's nice to share pain with somebody else who fears this feels the same way. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it's been rough. And, and, and I will say the other thing I, I think I noticed most about the pandemic is that, unfortunately, the combo convention scene seems to be dead, at least for the, for the, the year. It seems it's over, um, which is yeah. at least where I am. I don't know. It's, I mean, do you still have conventions that you're technically on schedule for? No, no, no. Everything's done. <laughs> Everything's- <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I think it's also, even when they do come back, I don't know what that's going to be like, because they're, they're so congested, you know, like, I, I don't know, even even the small conventions I've been to are are so packed, and it's so much movement and stopping, and you're sharing so much space, that I'm like, I just don't know when, when they do, if they do come back within the next year, I, I can't imagine the attendance to them is going to be anything like they were. I would say, especially with the the virus, you know, there there is going to be another wave of this more than likely. And they're saying, if there's no vaccine, we're going to be looking back at this next year as well. And I can't imagine if this goes back to next year, anyone's going to trust conventions. I took part as as as, as a fan of a convention called GalaxyCon. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, it's been advertising for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where they do the virtual convention, and it was John Wesley Ship, Teddy. Shearer, I think, and I can't remember the name of the woman from The Flash, but she was really cool. Camacho, maybe something like that. And it was a virtual convention, and I'm thinking, I was, you know, watching it at home, and I thought to myself, this is probably the future. This right here is going for the next year, two years, maybe three years, is going to be the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to see a lot of those. I mean, San Diego is going to go fully virtual. I don't think New York has announced what they're going to do, but I, I just cannot imagine New York having, even if they had a convention, I just can't imagine people going. Because that would be October. Like that's going to be so soon. And if we do have a second wave, I imagine New York will get hit pretty hard again. Yeah, I, virtual does seem like like kind of where it's at. I, I work in theater a lot too, and it's so funny. I, I'm, I'm getting contacted nonstop with like 
theaters I haven't worked at in years that are just like, do you have anything that could be done virtually? Which <laughs> theater artist, theater yeah. artist, I'm like, it's it's antithetical to everything we do as theater artists. Let me think about it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that seems like the, the whole point of theater that it's live. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the intimacy of it. So it's really thinking. So now, I, I, every once in a while, I'm trying to think like, how do you recreate intimacy over Skype? You know, over over Zoom. Like most of it's happening over Zoom, or and, and I'm just like, I I don't know, I don't know exactly what that would be. I'm 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 definitely in the midst of thinking about how to do it, just because I've been getting asked so much. Yeah, I I can't help but think that. I mean, I assume the actors can't be in the same room, so it would be sort of a t- people talking to each other conversationally versus through like like I said, Skype chatting or some sort of conversational play, I guess. So I mean, without yeah. like performance, just people sitting at a desk chatting with each other. Yeah, it I would guess. have to be. So, I mean, the public theater in New York did did a Zoom play like a month ago, and it, it was basically it's it's it was a family having a Zoom conversation that you just kind of watch as a voyeur. It was done incredibly well, but for me, I was just kind of like, I have this phone call every week. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't know if I need to watch the phone call. For me, most of my theater career has been as a solo performer, so just performing by myself. So it's been more me thinking like, and, I, and I've done a bunch of filmmaking, so I've been like. Is there a way to like mold the two things into something interesting and new? I have not figured this out. Like anyone who's listening is like, ah, this guy thinks he knows. I don't know anything. I'm just, I, it's something where I'm like, how, how do you make that an exciting there, experience? I think that wasn't there a, a movie. I'm trying to remember the name of the horror movie. It was like something like unfriend me or something along those lines. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Unfriended. Unfriended. Yeah. I guess it would have, I mean, that's the closest I think I could, I can imagine to a story on Skype. It'd be the closest I could think yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, I, I I never I never saw it. I should actually look at it and just get a sense of what they were, of what they were doing. It's really it's, bad. Basically, really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's basically. I mean, it's just it's just fucking up. It's fucking up most of the arts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a creepiness. I think <laughs> I can't help but think it's creepy to watch a virtual family or talk to each other. It seems this seems like it must be like a creepiness to that. Yeah, I mean the the play is a very like Chekhovian. Like, so people don't know check it like Russian playwright. Like, it's just, it's very talking, very intellectual. So it was very much like an Upper East Side family and, and their relatives all splintered around the country having, like, you know, conversations about the, the issues of the day. The playwright of it is this guy, Richard Nelson. He's great. I, like, so it's really smart. It's just, like, not an experience that I personally long for. You know, no. like, as a, as a viewer, I'm not like, oh, this is what I really desperately want or need. Now, now do you see yourself signing up for any virtual conventions? I did one, actually, I'm forgetting the name of it. I did one like a month and a half ago. Uh, a good, a friend of mine, Rylan Grant, who's a comic book author, he was doing a panel and asked me to join the panel. It was it was fun because, I mean, it was primarily just like, it was kind of like just having like a, a Zoom conversation with a bunch of your buddies while you're getting <laughs> drunk and, you, and you're just kind of like, oh yeah, I guess people... I guess people are watching us while we're doing it. It doesn't necessarily feel like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I would because it makes, I mean, with a toddler, it makes life at home, you know, conventions, traveling for conventions are really hard with a young child. Where this, I'm like, okay, as long as he's asleep, I can do a later, a, a later interview or a later yeah. or that type of thing. So I'm not against it. I mean, we're going to all have to figure out <laughs> so we all got to figure out something. Yeah, uh, I, 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 t- I totally agree with you. 
I mean, when um, watching the GalaxyCon thing, there's, there's a point of it that I thought was interesting that, you know, it was nice to watch a convention without having to get dressed, you know, as a fan. But at the same time, right. without, without, when you're not meeting the person in person, the difference between listening to them talk on your computer and watching them on TV doesn't seem that big of a difference. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. It does make me wonder if the con experience would need to change in some ways. Like, because so much of the con, I think, is like, getting close to these people whose work that you love forever and having like a personal conversation with them or an exchange or getting something signed. And there's a part of me that I'm like, that's so hard that again, it's the intimacy issue, right? Like convention provides intimacy where in some ways I'm like, uh, I hope some of the conventions do more, I don't know, geared towards like, I just wonder if there's a, a really good use in this moment of like being educational in a way of like, a lot of you want to know how to make comics. Like maybe this convention is geared towards like, this is how you do it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It's such a mystery. And, and I know it's something I get asked all the time. It's just like, how, how do I get in? How do I write a comic? How do I meet a collaborator? And it's like, it's like, it's good to hear from a lot of different voices on it because there's so many different ways to do it. Especially the new world where everyone is flying blind a little bit. I mean, the closest oh, yeah. I could come to is, I guess, one-on-one Skyping with people. And then, you you know, they, you have one minute, talk to the person, get signed. They'll sign a paper, they'll mail to you. And I don't know how that, how that would work out with I me mean, with the line and everything. Uh, but that's close I could come to, to what a convention would be like. It's just, I don't know if I'd pay for that. <laughs> right. Like, that would be the hard thing, right? It's like, are you, are you going to pay whatever they decide the money is for that to have a one-minute experience with, you know, a writer that you like or a word artist that you admire? I, yeah, I mean, I, I I I found I think it's interesting how the going forward CaxiCon I think is the first major one that I've seen do it, and you know on a large scale. But at the same time, like I said, I saw it was interesting. I didn't have to pay for it. At the same time, like I said, I might as well just watch them on TV if, if I'm just going to not participate in the conversation at all. You know? Right. No, absolutely. So um, go, go, just going back to your combo, your combo just a little bit. Um, before obviously everything uh, with Diamond and all everything broke hell broke loose. Um, Bliss was slated to appear June 24th. Is that still yep. the release date? No, we come out July 22nd now. Uh, we got pushed back a month. That's not so bad, actually. I mean, uh, I would say one month is, is better than uh, probably a lot of projects have. Yeah, I've been really lucky. Like, I, w- I was working on a bunch of freelance things, and none of them got canceled, and a bunch of them didn't even get their dates moved. So we, we, Kate and I felt pretty lucky because we were just like, we, we had no idea like what was going to We knew when this all hit, I was like, I don't, I don't think we're coming out in June. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that didn't seem at all realistic to us. I mean, the, the business has bounced back faster than I personally expected. So yeah, no, July's good. You know, it, it, the hard thing with it is that we, we really have been getting a lot of momentum, you know, Kate's drawings and, and our time-lapse videos. And, and I think a lot of people who are fans of Coyotes, we were getting just a good amount of just organic growth and word of mouth. And then, you know, that's just went away and the world also like landed on its head. So like, it's, it's really an impossible moment right now in terms of trying to market and trying to get people to care about a comic book, which I, I mean, I don't blame people for that. It's just definitely more challenging than it was when we thought we were coming out. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, to, if there's going to be a, if there's a bright spot and I guess this might be the brightest you can get, I think it's, it turned out, I think you guys were, seem to be a little bit lucky that bliss came out, didn't had not come out when things shut down because yeah. i think if it, it first issue had come out and then you had like say, a month or two gap between or three month gap between the next issue that probably would have been w- far worse for not only marketing but from a fan base standpoint luckily oh, it doesn't come out till after 
No, I, I feel incredibly bad for everybody that had books going on, especially books that have like just come out where you're at issue one or two and, and indie books. Cause it's really hard to, you, you see a natural drop off from issue one to issue two and to issue three anyway. Yeah. Right. There always is that I, I don't, I can't imagine what that's like when it's also compounded by months of uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can't, I can't remember who the writer, I think it was Peter Milligan. I was talking to about that new company, AWA uh, studios and the company launched three weeks before shutdown. I mean, the comedy industry, I was like, that's a shit time to launch your company. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, that's definitely rough because I know they, they were, they ended up putting up a lot of, I don't know if the original plan was to put up so many books on Tapas and and webtoons like for free online, but it, it seemed like definite. If it wasn't, it seemed like fortuitous that they were already planning on it because nobody was going to get to the books. You know, like it was just going to take a while. And indie books also just—it's just different selling them, I think, than a Marvel or DC book. Like you, you need so much word of mouth and like people at the store hand selling it and people getting excited online and talking about it. Like it makes the, all the difference. Oh yeah, I agree with you. I agree with one hundred percent. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of comic books are going to have to go towards probably. Uh, graphic novel to just kind of wrap it up and send it out there. I think they did the same thing with Lucifer on DC, uh, Vertigo DC, where um, the last issues of Lucifer are just going to be wrapped up in one graphic novel instead of finishing up the single issues because they decided, I guess they right. just gave up on it at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think that's happening. That was already starting to happen a little bit more and more, right? Like you were seeing a lot of uh, series that the sales would drop off between the first arc or the second arc and they you'd see teams just going like, you know what, we're going to keep doing the graphic novel of this for the next arc or two, but we're not doing single issues. We're just dying. So, no, I mean, that would go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, sir. I don't even know what I was going to say. I was going to, <laughs> I was going to probably ramble on and repeat myself again. Oh, that's, that's for You're more than welcome to ramble. Like I said, we, we have the power of editing. So if there's too much of a ramble, we could also just be like snip, you know, <laughs> you're fine. Always feel free to ramble. <laughs> <All right. Fair laughs> some, of, some of the best things come out from a good ramble, in my opinion. So with Bliss, when it happened, how far along were you in the creation process? Oh, we were pretty deep. I mean, we had the first three issues done, and Kate had already been, like, I think halfway through the pencils for the fourth issue. So, I mean, in terms of our actual, like, production calendar, it it didn't throw us at all. Yeah, so that worked out well. Now... Now, were you pencils down during it? Or, I mean, I think I guess with ImageCom because it's self-owned titles, I guess it's up to you to choose if you're penciled down or not. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, you're your own free agent. So yeah, we weren't penciled down at all. We we kept talking about it. We were talking about all the marketing plans and all that because you're kind of in charge of every everything when you're doing a book at Image. It's like there's a you know you're trying to figure out as well of how to how to market you're doing it in line with with images staff but you kind of have input on everything is, is that is that harder to know that you're i mean i imagine being a writer and an artist and also a marketeer or publicist for yourself are two totally separate skill sets is, is it yeah. hard to be the other skill or, or know if you have the other that other skill set of being your own publicist i guess marketer i wish i was better at marketing <laughs> i'm sure that's <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, you know, I, producing theater for so long is, it, it feels exactly the same as like in theater I was always marketing the shows that I was also making. So it doesn't feel that strange to me. I mean, all of us have down days where you just kind of bitch and you're like, I just want a marketing person. <laughs> like, like I just want someone full time to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I mean, the, I think the hardest thing is that, especially because of social media, marketing is just changing constantly. Like the best ways of doing it, the best practices, you know, what, what worked on coyotes, you start realizing you're putting up stuff on some social media platforms and you're like, the traffic at this platform doesn't work the same way it did two years ago. Like, so, it, so now I have to figure out how to do another form, right? I need to figure out a new way of using a platform I already did. I mean, it's, it's really like, I guess for me, I'm like, I just wish this shit would stay the same. <laughs> like, Why can't I, things I stop want, evolving? <laughs> yeah, kind of. I want, I want evolution to stop in the marketing world. Because I'm like, I, I don't mind doing the marketing. It's still kind of creative. It's just that when I'm having to relearn things or figure out gimmicks and things, that's when I start just going like, I don't have time for this. I'm still trying to finish issue six and I have this other book. And But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's part of what it is. And it's also good because I think it connects you with your audience. It connects you with the audiences more because you're, you're all, you're talking to them months before the book even comes out, which is a good way of also learning like who your audience is and like, what do they want to read? What, what are they interested in? How far can you go? I mean, sometimes I ignore that anyway, which isn't mm. probably smart of me, but, <laughs> um, but it, it, I mean, it's definitely educational. So, so as a veteran self marketer, what have you learned that you can pass on to our listeners? Oh, Christ. Video, video is huge. Video makes all, videos makes all the difference. I also think like the best advice I ever got was like, no one knows anything. And so just like, (laughs) don't, don't be precious about how you share or what you share. Like we we get hit with so much content on a regular basis that people will, people will come up with these definitive plans of just like, well, I have this great ad, but I have to release it on Tuesday at 9am. And it's like, (laughs) well, I have this other ad and maybe I should put out two a week. It's like, you only you know, like there's all these old, there's a lot of methods of marketing that are also older that are like, you, you only want people to see it so much where like some of the things I've been listening to or hearing or advice that has worked is like, just test out everything, like throw out an ad at midnight on Twitter on Friday. And, and like, there's people up, you, you, it might, it might find a whole ton of people you didn't expect, like put it out, like basically just trying things and not being scared to try things is the biggest. Cause there is something with marketing too. You're, as much as putting out a comic book, you're kind of putting your ass on the line because there's a level of like, I just don't want people to get annoyed or think I'm stupid or or to, or to judge the book badly because I didn't do it the right way or because they're seeing it too much. It's just like the anxiety of that can just make you paralyzed as opposed to just going like, whatever, I'm just putting I'm putting it out there and I, I, I have to so people find it. I mean, I find Twitter's really useful. Instagram can be okay. I don't see as much traffic from that. Facebook can work pretty well. I'm not on Facebook though. I find Facebook evil. So it's always, so that's also like a real, <laughs> but it's also problematic, right? Like I find Facebook and they own Instagram. I find them super problematic as a company. And so, well, I, I, I wrestle with it all the time. And, and I agree. I mean, I, I will say I'm one of those people cause I, I do lean pretty hard left that has um, serious issues with uh, what's going on with Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg and all that. However, being the public relations manager for a uh, podcast, you can't just ignore, the, unfortunately, oh, yeah. the entire platform of Facebook. So at the same time, you're, you're, it's almost like um, for me going into a Walmart on some level, which is I don't like it. The same way I haven't figured out a way to not do it and still reap the benefits, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't judge anyone who does. I mean, I, <laughs> maybe just I'm like a social nihilist. I'm just like, <laughs> tired, but I don't really judge most of anyone for like – I mean, unless like ignorance and hate are like, I judge that. Right. But like, if yeah. you, like, like when my mom's on 
Facebook, I'm not going to give her a lecture about it. Like, <laughs> and I and I understand why people are on it because it's you know it's ubiquitous. Like if you want to get your message out to a lot of people, there's a lot of people right there. Like again, right. you know. So I mean, in some ways, I've been working around it, which is kind of the same, right? Like I've been making like this go around with Bliss. I've been making all of the videos available to comic book shops so they can post it on their Facebook, right? Like so that it's not just me trying to do it through a single page, but they can do it as well. I mean, we'll see how it works. It's always, it's always a crapshoot. I mean, at the end of the day, I have found the thing that works the best is people genuinely talking about your book when you didn't ask them to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, which no one likes to hear and marketers won't talk about because like you can't control it, right? But like right, right. Even, even strangers, like if Warren Ellis talks about a book, like my last book, Warren Ellis, in his, in his, he talked about, of, of his own free will and like his, his newsletter and that helps. Right. Yeah. But also yeah. like someone who has 10 followers, when they talk about it on a thread or whatnot, or they retweet, like, honestly, the biggest thing, if you like a creator and especially independent books, retweeting tweets about their book sells book, literally sells books. It's huge. And, and I, th I think it's kind of cool what you said about releasing something at midnight. And I will say there's a bias that I learned about myself a little bit of before when I was started being a public relations manager, the idea that because I lived in Rhode Island, I know you live in New York, the East Coast bias. And I thought to myself, you know, you're, like you said, release something at midnight. It's only nine o'clock on the West Coast. It's not that, you know, <laughs> if you're forgetting the West Coast people do have the time difference. So midnight is actually not a bad time. And Absolutely. And what also I think it underestimates who reads and loves comic books. Like my uncle works at nine. He owns a comic book shop. He works at nine one one on an overnight shift. Like he's up, he's up at, at two o'clock in the morning because he has to. So like he's, he will see that. Like I know that there's a bunch of fans who read books who are working overnight shifts as like nurses and you know, like, so it's, it's just like, it, I think it under, like we just aren't a nine to five, worlds anymore but i think a lot of principles of business and marketing are still somewhat designed or stick to the ethos of like no nope, people are in at 9 a.m you want to hit them at their lunch break at noon uh, and it's just <laughs> like i don't i don't think anyone's doing that yeah yeah you know no i i agree with you 100 on that one 100 especially with the lockdown i think with the lockdown our on some level, I don't know the right word, be biological clock or whatever, but our mental clocks are totally gone now. And I don't think there is such a thing as on some level, you know, I would do this during the daytime. I do this in the afternoon. I'm only doing it at night. I think it's, we've kind of all merged our schedules into almost one long day of random time. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent true. And also like a lot of people, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how many jobs stay zoom oriented, even when people go back to work, which is going to continue that. You know what I mean? That like people's day and night are gonna are gonna be tied. They're not gonna be tied to their workday hours the way that they had been for you know decades. True, I 100 percent agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, especially when the lockdown. And I, I'm 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 a pessimist. I think I really do. But I think once we open back up, it's only gonna be a few months before we shut back down again. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're gonna all be thrown back into the situation regardless anyway. Oh God. <laughs> Maybe Jesus. <laughs> uh, like I said, if there's no vaccine and we're all, all open back up, I think it won't be long before we figure out, you know, oops, <laughs> like in, like the Spanish flu. Oops, you know, we'll look what happened the second time around. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, the possibility of it is feel it does feel super high. 
So, so it's on a happier note. On a happier, well, I don't know if it's happier, but it's definitely a happier note. Let's talk about Bliss. What, what inspired you to write it? Kate and I had a really good time working on Coyotes. That's Kate Yarsky, the artist. She's incredible. If you're going to buy the book, you should buy it solely. I mean, if, if for nothing else, her art is just unreal in it. We had a great time working on Coyotes. We became, we didn't know each other basically at all when we started that book. And then from doing like signing tours and, and conventions and, and, you know, just interacting over the book over the course of almost two years, we, we became like really good friends. And so we were just like starting to brainstorm about like, okay, what's the next book we want to do? And Kate had mentioned, she was like, I'm really interested in doing something that has to do with redemption or forgiveness. I'm a lapsed Catholic. Redemption and forgiveness are always going to be, they show up in my books, even if the artist doesn't want that to be what we're talking about. Um, And so Kate and I just started pitching these ideas back and forth. And like, I I don't remember who said that. It might've been Kate. She was just like, I, I remember we were talking about like just the concepts of, how easy it is for some people to sleep at night, like how people could do a horrible thing and it just never bothers them. Yeah, and yeah, through yeah. that, through that came this idea of like, well, what if they were all just taking this drug we didn't know about that just like created that ease, like it gave you a conscience, it just like erased the bad thing you did. Like you want to have money and you know it's going to destroy people, and you're like, well, I'll take a little bit of this drug and I'll be able <laughs> to get the money and I'll never feel guilty about the thing I did. And that started to kick off the overall idea. I'm a big myth nerd. So then I just started going down like, okay, who, how does that work in the gods? And my brain just immediately went to like, well, there's the river Styx and there's the goddess Leaf, like, you know, goddess of oblivion. And we can kind of connect that. Like, what if that's the purveyor of, what if that's the person who's generating the drug? And then, and then it just kept spinning. We both love Neil Gaiman and Sandman. And so we were just kind of like, oh, we're kind of making like Neil Gaiman's Breaking Bad. Like, <laughs> let's see how, let's see how that kind of, that works. And it ended up becoming, you know, it's interesting. It's become a really personal book for both of us. Like we were literally texting last night because we had to turn in final, the final files of issue one to image last night. And uh, so we're going back and forth over just very final edits and making sure that everything's in order. And Kate was just like, this book, I just feel like all the shame it talks about and all the like how to overcome it. She's like, I feel like I live that. And I was just like, yeah, it's funny. Like the the father son relationship in this is like, has become so definitively my relationship with my dad and like fears of my relationship with my own son. So it's kind of just morphed and grown as we've gone. I think it's become a really special book for the two of us. Well, I'll definitely say we're lucky. Caitlin or Kate is going to be interviewing with us in, two days so we'll, we'll, we're luckily going to talk to her as well about bliss so we're looking forward to that yeah she's great she, yeah. i'm glad to have her on she and also more people just need to know just need to know her work i mean the stuff she did on coyotes i thought was groundbreaking and the leap she's taken on this book is just it's kind of dumbfounding honestly oh her, her art his art is absolutely her art is absolutely amazing i i mean I was, I was looking through the pages of bliss and i'm thinking it, it there's such there's so many levels to the artwork and so much detail. I, I thought it was phenomenal what what she managed to do. Oh yeah, she's unreal. And her panel, where she's doing panel breakdowns and, and just the general momentum of scenes is like, like her. She's incredible just as like a a like as a technical artist. But now how she's, you know, Coyotes was her first comic book. So like how that's now the experience of that, how that's grown into how she can do sequential storytelling and bliss is, is like, it's really impressive. 
Now, is it exciting to to experience the growth of both of you together? I mean, have, have you guys developed any kind of like shorthand now that this is your second series together? Oh yeah, it's pretty. We have a pretty a pretty good back and forth. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of trust. You know, I think like if like I have complete trust as soon as I turn a script in. Basically, I, if Kate has some some thoughts on a script, I, I know where it's coming from, and our our mind on the story we've talked about it so much is is so connected that I'm like, oh right, that like there's very little disagreement on that. And then in terms of like when I give the pages of the script to her, I'm like, I just know when the art comes in, it's going to be incredible. Like, like, so like, that's always a nice place to be from of like, I just know what I'm going to get is going to be way beyond anything that I imagined. And that's a great feeling to go like, I feel very confident about this script. And the cool thing is it's going to become 10 times better when the pages come in. And, and I, I think what I noticed a lot with you and Kate, I mean, it's almost, is an essential thing is that, you can sometimes, from especially from my perspective as a fan and someone who does interviews and whatnot, I can tell when an artist is really excited about the project because not only by the way the individual promotes the work, but just the enthusiasm with, in which they do it. And I can tell that she is invested in your project, uh, in the project together. And I'm, from a marketing standpoint, that's got to be a huge deal when the other half of the team is that invested in the project. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, she, we, the biggest thing that has just been like, I mean, she has, we have both so much ownership over the project. I mean, it's just me and her. Like we are, I'm writing and doing a lot of the editing, like Kate's handling all of the art and the visual storytelling. And, but we're also talking nonstop about like, you know, like Kate's going through the pages yesterday and like, she'll send me texts and she's like, Hey, between the second draft and the third draft, this line on this page in this panel changed to like, you changed this one word. What do you think if we went, I was rereading it. What if we went back? And it's just great having, when you have that, when you both have that much passion, it's like, Oh, let me look at it. And then you look at it and you you talk about why the decision was made or it's like, Oh yeah, totally make that change. You're right. That change is better. I don't know why I, you know, I was probably getting anxious and was just making changes to make changes, you know? So it's, it just kind of, I, I think when you both, when both, artists have that like that have a true 50 50 partnership I, I think it makes the work better but it's also like you have a true partner through every aspect of the work you know I, I, it's the best way of going and i can't help but think i mean i'm well, one of the things my side gigs is i'm a very small market comic book writer i, I mean honestly nowhere near the level i do very indie comic books at the moment and i will say as from a writer i'm, I'm sure this is natural for a lot of writers you go through those spells of I don't know, maybe it could be just me, of absolute most paralyzing doubt where you're not sure what you're doing, you're not sure if it's any good. It must help a lot to have someone like uh, Kate who is on the project, who does believe in the project and is further, by being enthusiastic and interested in it, is encouraging you to keep going on it. Yeah, I mean, there's an incredible amount of freedom because I know from the moment we start conceptualizing a book that if Kate can draw it, that if Kate can draw it, I can write it, right? Like I can, my imagination go as crazy as possible. Also like right from conception, I, I usually start with all of the artists i worked with and I'm like, what do you want to draw? Like what, what, what world do you want to be in? And what, like, I'll, like I'll fit a story to it, you know, I, I, but like, what, and like, what are the things you want to draw? Kate really wanted to, she was like really interested in drawing like animal gods. <laughs> so yeah, that's was, cool. So I was like, okay, 
Like I've got to <laughs> now figure out how that fits into this world. And that's kind of fun. Cause then I just start going like, okay, I just have to make it believable that they would exist in this type of universe and then have fun. And for me, it, it creates a new challenge and, and excitement. You know, I, I went to grad school for, for uh, playwriting and we used to have this exercise called a bake off. And it was my favorite thing. We would do it at the start of every semester. Just to, It was kind of like to, it was just a fun event for everyone to get to see each other's work and get back into the flow of writing. And basically what the bake-off was is like our professor would give us like a bunch of recipes, like uh, a, b- a bunch of, um, I obviously don't cook a lot, uh, <laughs> things that you put in, a lot of ingredients, like we'd give us six ingredients and you would then have to go off and write a play. But the ingredients wouldn't naturally match up. It would be like the absence or presence of water, uh, a betrayal, a giant dog. <laughs> two, like two push pins and you're like what the fuck am I going to write about but the amazing thing was is like your brain like when I teach writing I'm always like I, I try to remind students I'm like when you hit when you feel like you're hitting writer's block like people give advice like just write through it which that can be good advice for some people but if you're paralyzed just write through it doesn't really mean anything so like I'm usually just like trust that your brain is not going to get bored like your brain's not going to let you get bored and if you take the pressure off of like what I'm writing right now is the final draft, or it's even going to make it into my comic or play or whatever you're working on, like you just go like I'm right now I'm just writing for me. Yeah. And then you can take like ingredients like that that make no sense, and your brain will start to have a lot of fun going like, oh, I'll bring up the pushpin in the first scene, and then later on they'll be the reason why the giant dog shows up. And this <laughs> is an insane story that I'm putting together right now, but. Um, <laughs> But I think it's more like, I, I don't think I, I think because I've had to write specifically in theater and comics, which are not high paying fields yeah. um, for the past like 15 to 20 years, I don't, I don't hit writer's block as much because like, I just don't, ha- I don't have a house if I hit it. Like I, yeah. I don't, there's no way for me to survive. But I think what ends up happening more often than not is like the paralysis can come from, from being too precious, which sometimes comes from, from reasonable fear right like i don't want to do something bad i don't want to make a piece of shit that's a that's a reasonable fear and everybody has that like there's oftentimes where i'm like rushing forward and we're getting to publication and that's when i'm like i gotta reread this book i've read it so many times like did i just make a horrible horrible mistake <laughs> you know so i mean it, it helps in the, i do like writing the comics one of the plays because having partners like kate or like I worked with Hayden Sherman a lot and Benjamin Mackey. Like I've worked with a lot of the same artists multiple times. Is like it's just less lonely. It's amazing. It's you need. I think you do no matter what. It helps to have a bit of a tribe, even if it's just one person that you're like, you're both still excited about it. You know, like you can that 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 does really help you soldier on. Well, I think it's interesting that you made a comparison of your story between sort of Neil Gaiman's American Gods and also you said Breaking Bad. Those, I mean, that's a pretty high bar. Did, did you feel pressure on comparing to, you know, Breaking Bad and Yo Gaiman's? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm not. I, I don't mean that. I'm like, yeah, I'm at the same level as Neil Neil Gaiman. I, I guess I don't look at it as a competition, right? Like Neil's created a lot of work. Some of it is like some of the best comic work ever. Some of it, even he, I think, would say is like that is not some of the best comic book ever, like comic work ever. I think I think people get too caught up with legacy in a way that's not helpful to art or to work. Like, I guess I've just always maintained, like, I gotta, so no, I don't feel pressure of like, what if we're not as good as Breaking Bad or, or that's more of just like, it's so hard to sell a comic that it's just, that's more of just like, 
can I give you any sense of what you're getting into when you get into this book? And so it's like Breaking Bad to me is like, and like, a, like in a way, like a like a southwestern neo noir, right? Like okay. there's gonna there's gonna be like murders and deceit and crime and like some a little bit of humor with a modern sensibility to it. And Neil Gaiman, like for me, is just like there's magic. <laughs> like there's yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> there's, like, there's just comic fantastical magic. There will be there can be talking god animals who interact with a drug dealer and it's completely fine. So throwing <laughs> them together is basically more of just going like, okay, this is you can expect a world with magic, but that that reads like a crime story a lot of the time. I mean, it's it, in a lot of ways it simplifies it more than I than I love at times. But I've just found that in in such a flooded market with so many talented and amazing books, it's just like what can you do to make it five seconds easier for a reader to go like, oh, I might open that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like when I'm at the store, I might flip through the first three or four pages and, and, and think about it, you know? Well, I was going to say, when, when I read Bliss, even before I read Bliss, when, when I wanted to um, originally set up the interview with you, I didn't have the issue of Bliss. I only went through some of the interviews you were having. I saw online and I saw a couple of preview pages and luckily now I got, I've got to read Bliss. And I do think it was, it's a it's a phenomenal mashup of of the crime story and also with Perry and also the the Greek gods in there. And I thought I mean I thought it was wonderfully done the way it felt seamless. I think that's the key word I would use for Thanks. the description is a seamless connection. That's good to hear. That's probably my biggest concern. I mean. <laughs> You know, like, I think also one of the reasons Kate and I get along well is, like, I think we both do stuff that maybe is not the smartest commercially, but can be. I know that's like a double talk, but, like, uh, a lot of commercial influences, like, see a book or something that works and kind of mimic it. Or if you've had some success, you like, can you find a new way of doing what you already did? Uh, my take has always just been, like, what's the challenge I can give myself that could fail really miserably and like for me for bliss the the challenge i gave to myself was like the court really there's a there's a lot of it takes place in a courtroom and i was like oh that's like a horrible place to set a comic book like (laughs) is a courtroom like that's really interesting but it would be integral to how we're talking about this book and operating timelines and how how to give legitimacy to certain things and so that became the challenge is like can i you know i was really fascinated by the social network that movie yeah um because the social network, Aaron Sorkin is a playwright. So like to a lot of playwrights like me, he's like a legend. That movie shouldn't work. That movie's like, it's insane that that movie works. Like, but yeah. everyone watches it and they're like, I love this movie. This movie's great. And even if you don't love the movie, it's like, it's exciting and there's movement in it. And, and, and what I would say is I'm like, <laughs> if tomorrow I came up to you and said, hey, I'm getting sued by two guys and I'm going to have six depositions in the next week. Do you want to come to all of them? Be like, <laughs> Fuck no. Like I don't yeah. want to sit there while depositions are taken. And like that entire movie is dep- is, is depositions and, and, and like not even actual courtrooms. Like a few good men is a courtroom drama also. Striking. Yeah. But, but like social network, it's literally just depositions where it's just like, we're, so on the third, did you tell the Winklevoss brothers that you were like, yeah, and it's like, and for like two hours, you're like, I'm totally riveted and excited, and and I remember watching that, and I was just like, how the fuck are they doing this? Like, yeah. this is as a writer, I'm like, this is all stasis. This is all like stagnant. Like, just being in one room talking, this is insane. And of course, then I was like, I gotta do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so, so yeah, that became, so like, you know, Kate, there were some magical godlike things that Kate wanted to do. And then I was just like, I want to ruin our book by sending it <laughs> to the courtroom. And then that kind of, that challenge though, then forced me to go like, okay, what are the, the other stories, the other scenes that have to, have to have so much information and movement, but feel seamless for this book to work. Yeah. That, that became the real challenge. So it's, it's exciting. I mean, I, when I read through it, I'm excited because I'm like, I feel like it does work. And Kate has done such an amazing job and seamless job in terms of like the color coding of the different locales and time periods that just makes those transitions even easier. But, but I mean, I think that's been, I mean, for me, that's been the fun part is going like, oh, you're going to, each issue, you're really taking a mental, like a memory based journey through these people's minds and experiences that you're always in the present. Like the courtroom keeps us always in the present because there's an actual trial going on and then we're shifting and moving into these other worlds. But yeah, um, and, well, I was saying, as, as you mentioned, because we talked a little bit about Neil Gaiman, when, when, I, when you first think about the, the, the series, The Sandwich is one, one of my personal favorites, it doesn't seem like a comic book that had an audience. But it was so good, it created the audience. And I feel Bliss is sort of in that same boat where there may not be, I don't know if this sounds right or wrong, it might, have, just may not be an inherent audience for it, but the book is good enough that it will create the audience. I hope so. I mean, I think with each book, that's, that is the overall hope, is that it's, that it's good enough that people just start going, like, you got to pick up this fucking book. I mean, that's the goal, really. I mean, I think for Kate and I, we're both just like, I'm incredibly proud of it. I think it's really, really good trying to know trying to write something that's of the moment or that catches lightning in the bottle like i don't know if anyone knows how to do that like automatically i think i think that just kind of sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't i think the best you can do is just go like when i look back on this when it's when this thing's collected and i look back on it am i going to be like that was fucking great that was dope to make or am i going to be like eh I don't know what that one is, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So yeah. right now, I mean, I, I, I mean, at this point, I think Kate and I both look at it and we're like, nah, this is cool. I don't know if people will find it, but it's really cool and different and we're excited by it. Now, um, in, now in the series, um, you have the goddess, I, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. Is it Leth? Leith? Yeah. Yeah. Goddess Leth. I, okay. I, I, I it's always hard. I always go back and forth on different pronunciations also. Well, I'm just going to go with Leth for now because it just seems the easiest one I can say without stuttering over it. So I'll go with Leth. And so for the listeners, who is Leth? And, and, and is she, would you or consider her a villain in the series or is she sort of like, I don't know, uh, neutral? She's definitely the antagonist. Villain's a tricky word for me, but definitely antagonist. Sure, she's the villain. Not that tricky. She, in, in actual mythology, she's the goddess of oblivion. So she... She is where mem- like when memories disappear, or if there was, they didn't. I mean, they didn't know what Alzheimer's was back when she was kind of created. But I do imagine, like the whole idea of people losing their mind, losing their memory, forgetfulness, um, was all attributed to her. Like it, it was the concept of oblivion that it goes to nothingness. Like, what, like if your mind, brain goes to nothingness, it is it is because of this goddess. She's she's taken. And there's a river. The river left is is like when people would submerge themselves in it when they would come back up they would kind of be a quick sleep oh wow okay i, I yeah. must admit, I've, I've never heard of her at all to be honest with you oh uh, that's okay there's a lot of gods man a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot, <laughs> now, a lot of mythology out there it's impossible to keep up with all of it now in in, in your world does, because there's the goddess left does that mean that all the greek pantheon and or all the pantheons completely exist or 
Pacifica as you're working in, or are we in a, in a the way you've, you, I'm just trying to get a sense of how did you construct the world and what exists at that level in this world? She's the primary. I mean, we, we will learn some things in, in, in her mythology. She has like a number of brothers and sisters who are all gods of different things. They're not going to show up as major characters. It's, it's really focused on her and, and primary. I mean, it, the, it's focused on her and obviously it's focused on the family at the center of it, which is Benton and Mabel who are a married couple and their son, Perry. Really like for me, I was trying to wrestle with like, so my dad was a huge alcoholic, like a really successful guy and like deep down, like super troubled and who I didn't really know. Like I desperately wanted to know when I was a kid and when I was in grad school, he got really, really, it was a fascinating thing. And I thought about it endlessly as I've been working on the book. So when I was in grad school, I hadn't spoken to him in probably like five or six years. Oh wow! And I, yeah, and I then saw, I got a I got a MySpace message, which is probably dating how old I am, um, <laughs> from my aunt, who I also his sister, who I also had not spoken to in years, and she was just like, "Hey, Sean, it's it's your aunt. I just wanted to let you know that your dad's dying, and if you want to reach out to him, you don't have to, but someone should tell you this is happening." And so I reached out to him, and he. He basically was, had drunk, drank himself to the point where he was going to die. And so I had to go out and visit him. I, so I went out and I visited him. I came back home to school. And then school started, and within a month, he passed away. And when I went out to the funeral, they had a funeral where, like, every – I haven't been to a funeral like this before. People could just come up and, and share words about him. And everybody who got up there and, and described my dad described a, a guy I had never met, like – his, he had been insanely generous to people. He had done all these great things. And like my experience with my mom of him was not that like he was scary. We had to run away. Like, oh so it was just really fascinating sitting in a room going, like having people come up and going like, you know, and my daughter, like, like all these things happened to her. He bought a car for her and me. And then like someone else was like, he, he was the person who paid the down payment on my house. And you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, where am yeah, I? Yeah. And then I was angry, but I was also a little bit like, I don't know. I was like, is there another side of my didn't know? Do I want him to have retribution, like, or do I want him to have redemption? Right, like those two, those two balanced R's. Do I, do I yeah. want some revenge or retribution on him, or is it nice to think of my dad having some redemption in him? And I knew he had this disease that made him another, made him a monster. And I, you know, we're both on the East Coast. I mean. The opioid and heroin that comes through where I live is like it's it's high enough, you know, like yeah. you see it. And so we, me and Kate were just talking about a lot of that of like just guilt and shame and addiction. And we both have had different levels of experience of it around us or in our lives. And so, you know, when you when you're addicted to alcohol or drugs to that level, it is a god, right? It's like that David Foster Wallace concept of like your your god is anything you you really devote your life to. It doesn't yeah. have to be a, 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 you know, it doesn't have to be the Trinity you know, for the Catholics out there. But <laughs> so, so it really just kept building. Like you know, coyotes work the same way. It's like the way my mind usually works on the comics is like I start with the very simplistic of it. We start talking about like oh shame or conceptual, like a simple concept, like it's a, or a theme about like it's shame, it's guilt, it's redemption. Okay, I've got a family at the center of it that I relate to. My dad had addictions. What are addictions? Well, if addictions are a god, what would they be the god of? And I'm like, my dad was really in pain. He just wanted to forget shit. Like, there's a lot of bad shit in his life. He just wanted to forget. And that was where it came from. Yeah. So then I was like, so he worshipped forgetting, which means he worshipped left. 
And so then it just kind of built, so it kind of built out more that way than going like, I need, I wasn't thinking as much about bringing in a lot of Greek gods. In a lot of ways, I was just like, I was looking more of like, how do I explore my own dad? <laughs> this guy I didn't really know. And how would I defend him to the people in my life who he hurt, as opposed to the people who I met who he helped? So, I mean, it sounds like the writing of it was very cathartic. Yeah, I mean, cathartic means it's come to some solution where I'm like, I feel better. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's, I, well, actually, I guess it's fair in some ways. There's definitely, I think if you're, I don't know, I'd be curious to talk to other people about it. I don't want to presume, but like, I know my dad's wrestling with addiction. You know, it, it's informed parts of my life. But now that I have a kid, and I waited a long time to have a kid because I think I was always just worried of like, I'm going to be a shit dad. Like, I don't want to be a shit dad. Maybe that's genetic. And I just don't want to do what my dad did. And so I avoided it forever until like the woman I fell in love with was like, we're going to have a fucking kid. Like I want to have a kid, (laughs) Um, you know? And so we have this kid and I love him more than anything. And I'm around, I'm around, you know, I mean, way more than my dad was, but it's, it's been interesting in some ways writing about my dad as, at the same time as I'm starting to take care of this, this child whose personality is emerging, like, like, you know, four years old, he's, he's really got opinions now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so I guess it is cathartic in, in that way, for sure. Now, what, one, one thing that when I was reading Bliss, the, the, what came to my mind or what I was reminded of was a movie called The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Do you know, have you ever seen it? I love that movie. Yeah. And, love- yeah. That one popped in my brain. It's the idea of, of, of not only memory, but the idea that happiness um, is, is not necessarily happiness from remembering the good times, but it's maybe it's more about forgetting when things are bad is when where happiness comes from. I was wondering where where you stood on that, and that, is that one of the themes of uh, bliss? Well, sure. I mean, that's the that's the whole idea of that phrase, right? Of like ignorance is bliss is like such a you know you're taught that for ever. I think my grandmother still lives by that. She loves that. You know, she's old Irish, so the, like, you know, was is bliss is how they avoided everything in the old country. Like, <laughs> so I mean, does it make you happier? I mean, horribly. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, yeah. Like, I in in a lot of ways, it 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 makes you happier, but I don't know if it makes you a better or more well-rounded person, right? Because like, I think of like times where I've heard from somebody like, hey, you know, such and such doesn't like you. <laughs> and like I didn't know that before, and I would run into that person and be totally fine and happy and like, oh, no, that's good. <laughs> but then they're like, hey, that person you don't think about a lot isn't really consequential to your life. They don't like you, and I'm like, I'm like fucking miserable. I like want to <laughs> go to their like, I want to go to their Twitter and their Facebook and go like, who do they like? What's their problem? What did I do? Like, why won't they like, like what my, my all my ego and, and you know self consciousness gets caught up in? So in those cases, I'm like, yeah, ignorance is it, is bliss is better on that level, but I don't know that. But you can't get to real progress or acceptance through that because it's not real. I mean, that's the problem of it. It's not actually like in that case, in the example I gave you, ignorance is bliss in that sense because like you're kind of talking about inconsequential gossip. Yeah. But I think people but I think what it does is it reinforces for you, like, I don't I shouldn't engage or think about the world too much or, or this too much because it's when I don't know about it, I can just live my life and be happy versus if I do know about it, then I lose my mind. You know, like when I talk to my mom, she yells at me why I'm not on Facebook. Like, this is constant. She's like, I don't know what's going on in your life. You're not on Facebook. And I'm like, <laughs> I have some relations with it. And she's like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. it's bad. I'm on it. I like it. Leave me alone. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's a double, I mean, like most things, it's a, it, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think the internet has exploded a lot, but I also think like we're a generation of people. There's a, there's a couple of generations of us, I think now in like the thirties to forties range that it's like, we, we grew up with some simplistic politics and some message that for generations had been true. And then you start to hit the adulthood and you're like, all oh, this is bullshit. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> none of this is real. Like, I mean, I grew up with like communism is absolutely bad. Capitalism is automatically great. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, God. I grew up with God doesn't like gay people. Like, yeah, all these kind of like, all these really simple binaries where it's like, if you believe in this or don't, don't worry about that. Or you want to do that? Like, it's it's either or. And I don't know. I, my life, I look at, I'm like, it's it's none of those. It's everything is everything. Like, it's all mixed in together. Well, one thing is interesting that we mentioned about social media is that because of social media and because of probably the advent of the camera cell phone, now every moment of our life is a physical memory. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the best thing. <laughs> I mean, do you really want every moment of your life recorded for posterity, you know, for yourself? Well, I, guess, I, I mean, we don't. I mean, I, I think that's really scary, too. I, I you know it's something Kate and I talked about within the book is like, it's a kind of fascinating thing. Like, like issue two goes over this a little bit is like the importance of forgetting. And it's such a tricky concept because forgetting is like, well, if you forget, then people can continue to hurt you or abuse you or oppress you. But it's also a lot of societies have existed or continue to, to grow and even progress through forgetting certain things. Right. Like it's, and, and the internet doesn't let us forget, right? Like, if, if I, like I think about it with my son, I'm like, I mean, fuck, when he's 12 or 13 and probably before that, he's going to be on social media. Yep. People just, like, people automatically just volunteer everything from their life on there. And, like, he could post a picture of himself that, like, years later, you know, when he's actually a grown adult with a full frontal lobe, he's yeah. now answering, that he's now answering for and he can't forget. And it's not just, like, oh, I'm worried he's going to get punished. It's more of a, like, I wonder what the shame of that is going to mean for him internally, right? Because, yeah. like, all, all of us have done uh, – there's no one I know who has not done a completely stupid, moronic, shameful thing. And thank God we're allowed to forget it most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And and, and as you're talking about social media as well, because you're talking about what's your son and having like, pictures on the internet thing like that, nowadays it, – because you just, it just thought this occurred to me. Nowadays, it's, it's not just recording every memory that you have – but now you're recording your memories for everybody else. Now everybody has everybody's memories now on some oh, yeah. level. Yeah, it's all public access. It's a yeah. giant public access network. <laughs> <laughs> and and that and, and like I said, that that is horrible. I mean, it social media is something. I'm glad that when it hit, I was already in my uh, late teens, and I didn't care that as, you know, saying as much as much. But I can't yeah. imagine being formative years, going online, dealing with all that crap. And everybody else's crap. It, it, it must be a, a minefield, a horrible minefield for someone at that age. Well, I think it also just it destroys. Like when we talk about forgetfulness, like 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 forgetting as a general survival concept, right? Is like I grew up, and if you got bullied at school, right, that's a singular place. So it'd be like, okay, I get bullied at school between these two or three periods. These are my safe spaces at school, and when I get home, I get to be myself and be safe and free. Yeah. So many kids now, like. You get home and you can't forget that people that hate you at school, right? Yeah. Like you're getting messaged on your phone, on Facebook, like 
it's just nonstop. And it's like, no, it's so important for us to forget, to be able to like, maybe forget. And so some people would be the wrong words. It's just what I use for it of like, for even a little bit to be able to forget that people see me like this at a certain place, but here people don't like, once you, once you merge those two things, you're just like, I guess I'm this everywhere. Like, I guess the way that one or two people see me at my school, I'm now that in every locale I go to because I can't escape it. And, and I would say one nice thing too, about not having social media and pictures all over the place in video is that I guess it might, I don't know if it might sound weird, but the idea that you also, at least we do have the benefit of kind of remembering things, how we want to remember them. And we can't anymore because it's right in front of us. Right. Right. You know, (laughs) absolutely. Like there's going to be no more like big fish tails. Right. Yeah. (laughs) that, That gets harder. And, but I think, yeah, there's a beauty, there's a beauty and a performance that I think is integral to people to how we remember things like nostalgia. It's just tough. Again, like, we grew up with certain kind of binaries, but I think I think the world now is is moving back towards a lot of binaries. Like I have a lot of people who say they're like nostalgia is always bad. I'm like, well, if nostalgia cuts out intersectional like populations, if it po- if it if it cuts out like diversity, then of course it's bad. But nostalgia in like I remember a moment with my grandfather before he passed, and that moment has he was so important to me that the moment is twice as magical as it was in real life. I don't know that that's bad, right? Like that, mm. that it's, it's those balances. Like it's kind of different details we put on a story. Like it makes me wonder sometimes if like, did, did those types of stories, like when you were describing the first time you met, like the person you loved or a first kiss and you, you, you add these details in the story, you're certain like, yeah, the stars came out right at that moment. It just seemed amazing. And someone else yeah. is like, actually, it was an over... I have my phone out. And it says on the almanac that it was an overcast day. And, <laughs> and it's like, I just wonder if it's like, we need to keep some of those feelings in order to like survive and thrive. And so like those details get added solely to make those moments stay alive for us. I think that's important. But that's also, it's so hard to talk to somebody about that because that's such an abstraction to say like, well, I think that like embellishing a story or having your memory of it be so much more fantastical than the reality is important because it it gives you more of a will to live. It's kind of, it's a big, big ask of people. (laughs) I I 100% agree. I mean, I I will, I mean, on some level, I'm sure a lot of my older memories have been embellished. And in, on some level, I'm glad they've been embellished probably for so long that I don't remember if they're embellished or not. And I'm probably better off for it, you know? And you think right. to yourself, you know, the bad memories, some bad memories that I have. Though I, I'll admit, the bad memories tend to, I think, stick more accurately than the good ones on, on some level. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's oh, just you, me. <laughs> well, I think they're probably, they're more indelible. They're like a real scar, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think they just, you know, the brain is such a weird entity that i'm sure it's just like pain gets imparted on our brains probably just a little bit more succinctly than than joy or, or happiness and definitely contentment now my memory of we, t- we mentioned earlier the, the um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and my memory of the movie at the end talking about perhaps spotty memories is that the main protagonist jim carrey's character determined that he would rather have all the bad memories of that woman that he was i can't, I can't remember the, right. the character Clement. Clementine. Yeah, yeah, Clementine, Kate Winslet's character, 
and in, to, just to have the few moments of the good memories, but he was also willing to have the bad ones just because he, you know, they were important to him. And when we're looking at something like Bliss, are you is sort of is there a similar concept of is it worth? Do we find is it worth having the memories to at all? You know, even if they're bad, or, or are you going with more the idea that it is it is pure bliss to not have? No, I think I, it's a necessity as a as a human being to grow to be able to have the things you did wrong and the things that made you sad and the things that hurt. I, I just think that that's a necessity like, to growing into a fully realized person. As as sad as that is, <laughs> as sad as that might be, it's a reality. I yes. just you know I I definitely have you know I have friends or I have some relatives who I think I hadn't really thought of as ignorance as bliss, but who like and I think social media, but even before social media, this was what people were like in neighborhoods who you know they're hurting, and yet when you talk to them, they're like, I am fantastic. I am. <laughs> I've never been better than I yeah. am right now. You have no idea how happy I am, and you're like, you. Everyone knows you're not happy, and we can actually help you. If, if like we can talk about this in any level of truth, but you can't. Well, it, it's sort of the idea of I don't know if it's quite connected, but the idea of toxic masculinity—the idea that men just can't say I feel shitty right now. You know, everything is fine right. <laughs> always at all times. Everything must be fine. Yeah, which invention invariably it's like it just denies. I mean, that, the problem with that was always like it just denies the, the, the frustration, stress, or anger of, of, a, of a person, right? Like if I, if I feel scared or sad, but I'm not allowed to express it, i got to put it somewhere or I have to transform it into a different energy. And now I'm punching walls. Now I'm like yep. getting drunk and crashing my car into stuff. Like it, it's just so much of not allowing – it's just funny. Like I'm just amazed as I get older. I just feel like an old man who's just going like, just let people be what they need to be. Just let them say what they need to say. Yeah. <laughs> deal, deal with it being uncomfortable for an hour. And everyone's going to work. It's going to work out better for everyone. Like there's just so many times where we're just saying to people, like, you can't, can't be who you are, right? Or you have to hide that. That part of you is bad or shameful. It always leads to bigger problems. I mean, I would say though, I think what I'm loving about bliss is that it does open so many interesting philosophical questions and ideas. And I think another one of the false philosophical questions I think that were fantastic in the, in the story too, talking about ideas of memory and, we talk about your father as well um, with you have Perry. And I'm also when I think about Perry and what he was doing that um, I don't, I mean, do you know that it's like a story about the idea of the man who steals medicine for his wife. I don't know this. Okay. So I, I can't, I can't remember the exact details, but basically what happened was there's a man who has a sick wife and to save his wife, he steals medicine to give to her. Now the question is, is the crime of theft oh. worth, you know, is that worse than what he, the goodness that he's trying to do for his wife? Because obviously the, the question is, would you, you know, are you willing to do a bad thing for the right reasons? Or is it, is that even a, a thing that you can't, or is, can you ever do um, the right thing by doing something wrong? You know what I'm saying? And I think Perry kind of falls in that same category that he seems like he's doing um, a bad, really bad thing for good reasons on some level. And are you, are you saying when, when you talk about your father, do you put him in the category then of being redeemable? Well, I mean, I think I might drive some people crazy with it. I think, I mean, I used to, I did some projects when I was doing theater that in like prisons. And I just think it's, when you sit across from another human being, it's hard to not see anyone as redeemable if they're putting in any effort, if they're even trying to be different. I think it's just, 
I think when we're when we're distanced from people, whether through television screens or through text or from or through like referring to people as solely just prisoners as opposed to names or, or you know or who they are identity wise, it's it, it's easy when we do that to go like ah they're just bad people are but those guys deserve to be in there and then like when you're talking to a person, I, I do I, I just think redemption is such a massive need of our society is is for people to be able to learn from mistakes and grow from it and therefore the entire community learn from the mistake right if it's just you make a mistake and you never grow or learn from it and that's the lesson that gets handed to everybody then everybody's just like oh shit i either got to like get really good at hiding my mistakes like i have to become <laughs> even better of a criminal yeah. or I'm never taking a risk or a chance or doing anything in my life because I'm so terrified of, of being not accepted. Like it's, it's a hard, I mean, on both cases, it's really tough. So I, I, I feel like even when, I mean, I got a lot of issues with my own dad, but yeah, I think I, I do think that there's a, I mean, he's passed away. So it's, it's kind of moot in that point, but I do think there's yeah. a, re, I think there's a redeemability to that type of character. And I think there is a big question about that. Like there's always the wrestling match of like, if you're put in a situation where you were, yeah, like in, his, in the situation I think you're talking about is just like, like a son is dying and the dad is given an option of like, you can sell these drugs for us. You can basically carry out these, these crime jobs for us that you might be hurting other addicts or good people or bad people. You don't actually know, but it's going to save your son. Like, like that's your option. Like you either save your son or you try to do it on your own where he'll probably die or we'll help you and you're going to do some bad things, but your, your son's going to live a good life and you might be able to even hide who you are from him. Now, um, oh, so sorry to interrupt, but I, I did have one to add, add one thing to the, your, to, to your thought because we're talking about memory as well. And the importance of memory, can you be redeemed if you don't remember? Oh, did. I, no, that I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I do. I think that that's heavily problematic. I think that that's. I, I think well, especially in this story, like people are actively choosing to to erase their memories. And I think like I think if you don't remember, you can't take. You're, part of being redeemed is you have to take responsibility. You have to say like that's what I did, and that is part of who I am. And it's going to be really hard to change it, but I'm changing it, or I did change it, or whatever. But if you if you can't acknowledge. And acknowledge is a tricky thing because I don't think I, I don't think it's a matter of like acknowledging to everyone you ever meet in all of society. Like that's a weird Twitter thing where it's like, I, where at times I feel like Twitter wants everyone to come on and go like, when I was seven I stole a candy bar and I'm so sorry about it. <laughs> I just need you all to know. But I'm like, that's not how the world works. But like if you if you directly hurt people, you owe them an apology, right? Like you you owe. And maybe more than apology, but like a true retribution, whether that's financial or whether that's through service. Or I, I do believe in those things. You know, one of the things that like I, I was really kind of fascinated by is I, I did this theater project in Africa a few years ago in Rwanda, and it was at this place called Agahozo Shalom, and like the whole it was always it was a lot of genocide survivors and at-risk youth in the city in the in the, in the country that we were working in. And and Agahosa Shalom was all about like these kids who were we were working with were like at risk. They'd done, you know, they're basically like they'd done some juvenile delinquent type stuff, um, or were taken away for other reasons to be at this home. And their their dead mothers and fathers were all genocide survivors. So the at risk kids, like part of what they had to do was service in their community. And I'm like, that's that's what I mean by redeemability. Like they've done something somewhere else and now they're making their community better. 
right? Like they, 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 through actual pro- projects. And then like talking to the genocide survivors was really fascinating because like one of the huge things in that country is like they had a genocide, but so many people were killed and so many people ran away that they had to invite the people who committed the killing back for the country to continue to exist. Gotcha. It's a completely, completely unfathomable idea, right? It's to like, yeah. it's basically to put out a call and go like, okay, all the people that have been murdering, like you're off in Uganda and Kenya and you're hiding out because you think you're going to get in trouble. Or you think we're going to kill you. We need you to come we need to come back to Rwanda. We promise we won't kill you. We'll figure out another way of doing this, which is amazing. And so they went back to these tribal courts called Gotacha. And basically what it was is like people would, and there was some scenes in Coyotes that used some of this because I found it so, it was amazing to me. Like basically what they would do is they would go to the places where these, they would go back to their villages where they killed some of their neighbors and they would get up in front of the whole village and admit everything that they did. And then they would be given a sentence of service throughout the entire community. And they were often forced to wear like matching colored jumpsuits. Like they were like this pink jumpsuit. So like kind of like a scarlet letter. And it was such a fascinating idea to me because I'm like, are they getting off easy? Is this the right way that you run a society? Like, is it better or more kind that they're being forgiven? Like, is the community going to survive better? Are everyone stronger for it? Or is there going to always be a residual anger of like, you killed my sister and you're still walking around alive? Yeah, you know, like, I, and I don't have the answers to that, but I think, I mean, I do, I, I, so, but I do think like there's something about like the country and those communities going like there's a difference between forgiveness and redeemability, and I, I, I just think we get we get caught up in thinking everything is just one thing. Like, so the way I took it is what they were doing in that country was saying, we will redeem you, you will be part of society. You are not necessarily forgiven. That's not up to us. That's up to your actual victims to decide. Yeah, but. You're gonna, you're gonna, we're not gonna kill you, but you're gonna have to be useful. You're gonna have to, really, you're gonna have to be good. And so that's something that I'm, I, the idea of goodness, I think every comic I've written has basically that wrestling match at the center of it is like, how are you, how, how are human beings good? Like, how do you, in a complicated, ever changing world where you have the frailties of human existence on you, like, how do you live a good life as a good person? Now, one interesting thing in um, reading the... I feel like I'm going to just be putting people madly to sleep. No, no. no, I must admit, what you're saying is actually fascinating. I I really do appreciate it. Um, (laughs) I actually appreciate it. But one question I I had with, in in Bliss, right? I think it's Leth who offers Perry that if anything you're doing becomes too much, we'll we'll help you forget it. That once he accepts that forgetfulness, he then, his redemption story then, according to what we're kind of saying, is over then at that point. It's over and or complicated. It means that like he'll he either has to get those memories back or find another way to account for them for him to reach some level of redemption for sure. You know? <laughs> I mean I, I guess in the in the terms of the addict, right? Like even in day-to-day life, if anyone has been around an addict, like there you can do heroin and forget what you did all day. You can forget things that you did to people a month ago. Right, because you're just so deep in the drug that you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Or I was blackout drunk or on drugs when that happened. I, the thing you're telling me I did, I don't know that I did. So it's those are things where it's almost it's really hard to get redemption for because you're like, I don't know how to give you, I don't have a memory of it, so I don't know how to give you the amount of 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 pain and apology and of myself to to make you feel safe again or, or to make you feel like I've, I've taken on enough of this. 
I don't, it doesn't mean that those people can't be redeemed in the long run. It just means that it becomes harder, right? If you've been hurt by an addict and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you're like, you don't even fucking remember it. You don't even mean it. They're going to have to go so much further to gain your, to gain your redemption. Like, redemption's really just something we get from others for ourselves. Now, now the court that, um, obviously you said the whole thing has a, is the background of the trial. Is the trial almost symbolic of him judging himself or us judging him? Of Perry, I mean. I would say both. You know, I, I, I think we live, I'm so guilt-ridden. I feel on trial all the time. <laughs> but, and, and I do think like there's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's both. I mean, he's literally on trial to his community and how to answer to, to, to really being atrocious to a community. But there's definitely a trial going on in himself. Of like, for him, I think where people will see it goes is like, it's not just being on trial, putting yourself on trial because you did all these horrible things to other people, but like, what does it feel like to have your son, who's a good kid, have to defend you in front of them and be judged because mm. of them? Like, that's fascinating to me is like the guilt that it would feel to hear your kid get up and go like, please stop hating my dad. I understand why you hate my dad. I'm sorry my dad hurt you. Like, yeah, yeah. like having them have to take on what you did. I think that's a, I think for a lot of parents, that just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, agree with you that. And I, like I, said, I think that's why I think just in having read that first issue, I think just there's so many interesting philosophical questions and ideas that come out of it. I really think is absolutely phenomenal. I, I, I think you have, you, you did a, a really good thing with bliss and at least the first issue, I, I really thought it was really well done. And you. oh, you're, you're welcome. And, and I'm, 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 I'm not just saying bullshit because you're my guest. I'm, I actually do mean it. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's easy enough. I mean, it's, it's easy to kiss ass your guess, but I actually do think just by, even from our conversation that we've been having that that all came from basically one issue of bliss and all the questions that kind of come out of that. I think you really did something unique and special. And do you think comics have been like, it's funny. I got into playwriting because I desperately wanted to be able to talk about complicated things. And it was funny, I, I found myself in the playwriting world and most of the time I was getting asked, like, why don't you just write some shit like Neil Simon? Like, we just want, <laughs> we just, we just want a comedy where, like, the guy and girl end up together. And I, I didn't know how to, I literally just didn't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I found, I've, I've actually found the comic audience has been so much more ready for it in a way I never expected. Like, it's funny, comics always get dismissed as, like, it's little kid stuff. It's all superhero bullshit. Like people in underpants. And I'm like, <laughs> like Alan Moore's stuff is amazing. Like yeah. there's some, like there's just so many comic book writers. I look at, there's some Warren Ellis. Like I read trans metropolitan and I'm just like, this is so relevant right now. And like, there's so many, it's so entertaining, but also like so deep at the same time that I, I feel lucky I'm getting to write comics in this time. Cause, cause you're right. I, I feel like I'm getting, the chance to explore a lot of things that are super meaningful to me, but also the, the audience is super smart. Like people who read comics, like they don't realize uh, outside people don't realize like these are people who are obsessed with like mythology. They're obsessed with English literature. Yep. They're obsessed with film, right? Like they're actually a really smart and, and, and fascinated audience. So like, it's just cool when you put out a book like this and people are like, yeah, it made me think about all these things, and I have so many more questions. And I mean, you can't really hope for much more. Yeah, and I, I, like I said, that's why um, comics are phenomenal. I mean, some of my favorite writers right now. I, I've been reading a lot of um, Brian K. Vaughn, and yeah, I think, well, like I said, he did some great stuff. And um, like with Saga, and right now, uh, Why the Last Man. And I think Pride of Baghdad. I think it was once again one of his deeper works, and I thought that was once again 
extremely thought-provoking. I actually toyed with a little, I teach English in high school at the school, and I toyed for a little while of teaching part of Baghdad at the school, though the, the issue was the affording, you know, to eight or nine copies of that graphic novel was, was too pricey. But I, you know, I toyed with it for a little while because it was again, a deeper story. And I'm also reading, I got, I got into Stan Sakai, uh, Yusagi Ojimbo, which on the surface seems very childish, but is once again, extremely layered. And I think that's something that you only find in comic books, that kind of, it, it, it's, it, that's, it's almost experimentation, something because maybe it is on some level, Almost, almost, I don't say disposable, but it's like I said, it's a short 20-something issue pages. It's something that a reader can dive in and take a chance on because it's so there's a shortness to it. So you can, if you don't like it, well, that's fine. Only one issue didn't hurt you too much, you know, time and money. But on the other hand, if you like it, there's all these, you know, following issues that come up later. Yeah, and I think also from the creator side, because it's it's a poor medium, right? You can take more chances because there's also a lot less voices. Like when we do a book and image, I mean, once the you know, Eric and the staff at Image are like, no, we think you're good. We, we, we like your book. You're never getting notes. Like, no one's never sending a note to me going like, no, that question, that, like, we don't know if that'll work. So, like, that level of freedom allows you to go just, like, to places that you probably can't in a lot of other media. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think also as a writer... I mean, I once when I, in my younger years, I'm I'm 40. In my younger years, I I toyed with the idea of writing a novel, and I, and I think I started a couple, and I realized at some point in about halfway through 100 pages in or so, that I started feeling the doubt of it and started you know questioning should I you know spend the next year writing another 200 right. pages, 300 pages of this, and it gets kind of overwhelming and that like I said, the doubt seeps in and gets kind of, you know becomes a little bit like concrete. However, with a comic book, once again as a writer, it's 22 pages. It's, once again, it's, a, it's, it's lower risk as well for yourself. I think almost as confident that you can almost finish a script before the doubt sets in completely. Yeah. Uh, well, that's completely true. I've, I, it's funny. I have the same wrestling matches with a novel. In my head, I'm like, someday I'll write a novel. And then I've had so many false starts where I'm just like, same thought as you. Where I'm like, am I going to spend a year on this? Yep. Like, do, do I love this story so much or am I so certain of what I'm doing that I'll spend a year? Where, I don't know, for some reason, comics have just felt so much easier to just be like, I'm the take a shot at it <laughs> yeah I, well i mean like, yeah i mean if you read a novel let's say you spend let's say you're a prolific writer um and you spend a year writing one novel and then you publish then you send you try to publish it and no one accepts it a year of your life was wasted on this project that you believed in on a comic book you write a script maybe you can get it done in a month maybe two months it's not the, and it's even if that gets rejected the blow isn't as bad on some level yeah i, I you're absolutely right i mean also, just like, uh, I don't know. Again, I still also think that the collaboration makes it easier because mm. there's just something about getting the art back that is like, it automatically becomes real. No matter if you're getting published True. an image or you're putting out yourself or you're going to just put it online or however you're getting it to the world, it's like, there is something about like, oh, I put time into this and now it's fully realized. That is, that also is like a, a big component of it. No, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think, and I must say that's been my favorite moments in a comic book is when the artist sends this back to you and it, it does jazz you up, you know, especially if the artist does seem excited by it. And, you know, you can tell by maybe how quickly they get to work into you, how quickly they collaborate, you know, take suggestions or give suggestions if that they're interested. It does jazz you up. It keeps you, it, 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 that is the fuel to keep moving on your next issue. Absolutely. So, so anyway, so going back, so uh, we, we haven't talked about an hour and a half. When so we said that Bliss comes out July twenty second. Yep. Very cool. That's that's yep. like I said, not too bad. That's a month. So 
so basically, if you're ordering from previews, you probably is it a month or is it two months before previews? I think in? our our final order cutoff is in like today's the fifteenth. It's in two weeks. I think our our cutoff is like the 29th. All right. So, like I said, hopefully people make tons of orders. The other thing I would I definitely would say is for a writer, especially in this time period, what can your fans do to help support you? Honestly, it's it's all word of mouth. I mean, the more that you can retweet, I mean, even if you're not going to like retweet or tweeting at your store, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Sean Chris Lewis. Honestly, the retweets of the videos is what makes them circulate and people get it it's what raises our sales more than anything. I mean, a big part of that is just Caitlin's art is insane. So people see the video <laughs> and they're like, they're like, what is this? Like, I'll buy this. This looks insane. But that's honestly, that's been the biggest thing that's been helpful. It's just straight up word of mouth, being comfortable, just like saying like, yeah, I like this thing. Other people should check it out. It, uh, it, it's huge. I, I, I will say from also from a writer, I don't know if you've had this experience as a writer. It is the artist that does seem to help um, sell. You know, I remember... Um, being at a combo convention as um, I would get tables from time to time, obviously not um, as, you know, pay for the tables. And I don't know how many people have come to my table. They're like, are you the artist? I'm like, no, the writer's like, oh, thank you. And they walk <laughs> away. And it's like this whole like shit on a, on a writer a little bit, but the artist, I mean, people flock to people doing art for something, you know? Yeah. I mean, I get it. It's, it's, I, I don't know. I look at it. It's a complete magic trick. Like, you know, like there's not a lot sexy about, a piece of white paper that just has like Helvetic <laughs> Helvetica font on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whereas like with art, it's just kind of like you're, you're really seeing the visual architecture of what's inside someone's mind, right? You're going like, Oh, it's, there's arches and water and there's a toad. And like, it's all real and done and laid out in a way that I could never imagine, but is really bringing me in. I, I, I mean, it's like a magician, you know, you're just kind of going like, Oh, you're, this is a magic trick. Yeah, well, I, I will say I used to go to conventions earlier on. I co-wrote a story called Nightmare Patrol with my father. And uh, my father would go to the conventions with me. And we would notice that a lot of the artists around us would sit and draw at their table. And that would get people's attention. And my father joked that maybe you should grab um, a paper and a pen and start writing at your table. And get, you know, I was like, <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs> it's not the same thing, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not the same thing, for sure. No, I mean... I, Artists are also, I think, why we love this form so much. Like, it, there's just something so primal about, you know, word, like, text and image that it never goes away. As much as people go, like, comics are dying, like, that's never going to go away. Uh, I love it. I, I don't think comics are ever dying. And, and, I, and I will say, you know, to, for the artist, on, on my wall in my house, luckily my wife is so, so tolerant of me. My wall, I post up autographed comic books all over my wall, like wallpaper. <laughs> I have not once put up a script. <laughs> I have some yeah. autograph scripts, but I never put them on my wall. And of it course, does say something yeah. about the, the cover, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's huge. It's huge. It's also like, that's why, you know, who you end up collaborating with and, and that work is like so integral. Well, like I said, I, we do look forward to talking to Caitlin. I, like I said, I think it's on the 17th. But either way, I, just, I, I think um, an hour and a half, we're going to close out the interview. I really do appreciate you talking to me. I really think your ideas... And uh, what you were and your thoughts and philosophy on bliss was fun, to me fascinating. I, I really enjoyed talking to you about that. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Well, there you guys go. What'd you yeah. think, John? I thought it was great, man. It was, it was awesome for him to come on. And then tomorrow we got Caitlin coming on to talk about it from the uh, the. Uh, 
the, the pencil or drawing part portion of the uh, the conversation, talking about her work as well. Yeah. And um, you know, Sean's done a lot of stuff in the industry. He's uh, got some some high profile books out there. Uh, if you haven't checked out Coyotes, I've, it's uh, it's got some really good reviews. So uh, and then Bliss is getting good reviews too. And it looks fantastic. I read the preview for it, and it, it's, it looks like it was going to be a lot of fun. A really good book. There you go. It sounds like a cool book. So I'm ready. Let's jump in and check it out. If you guys enjoyed what you heard, then I implore you to go check out SpoilerVerse.com. Uh, there's a ton of back issues. That's what I like to call them. Yeah. Uh, that you can peruse and listen to uh, a tons of comic book people, tons of TV people, tons of movie people, and editors, and directors, and all that fun stuff uh go check it out there's a lot there for you yeah and while you do that click on that store link in the middle there go there and, and you know buy a t-shirt or a, or a hoodie or a sticker or a face mask because right now you know you want to wear a face mask to help protect not only yourself and your family ones but you know all the other people out there who may have conditions that can't get sick for so do that and when you do that you know we get a, a, a buck or two from that to help us you know pay the bills to keep the stuff going for you because you know, there's no paywall. Everything we do is for free. It's all on the website, all on the podcatchers. You can listen to it as much as you want. So yep. it just that little bit get some swag and help us out. Get some swag and help us out. All right, yeah. guys, we're out of here. We're uh, out. Actually, before we go, don't forget at Spoilerverse, there's a ton of other podcasts <laughs> and articles yep. as well. So check them all out. Yeah, do it all. In oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu, and as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And read more. <laughs> <laughs>